0: the gospel doesn't simply offer liberation, it liberates. It doesn't simply offer regeneration, it regenerates. That's the power and the call of God in our lives. And when we receive Him and turn our lives over to Him in repentance and faith, we are His forever. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me please to Revelation chapter 7. If you have been worshiping with us over the last few Sundays, you know on a Sunday morning we are steadily working our way through Revelation, and today we come to chapter 7. You'll find it on page 1920, 1920 of the church Bible. Last Sunday morning we spent a substantial amount of time in chapter 6, and then we said chapter 6 is a difficult and tough passage to deal with as it focused on war and chaos and famine and greed and injustice and death. And that was chapter 6, and it was hard to look at sin in all of its darkness and ugliness. And today, chapter 7 is much more encouraging. So, we break into Revelation at chapter 7 at verse 1. And John is writing about what was, what is, what is still to come. And John is in the throne room of God, and he's writing about the culmination and consummation of all of history, and he's writing from God's perspective. And so, Revelation 7 verse 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, And holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to haram the land and the sea. Do not harem the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, from the tribe of Reuben and Gad and Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy Word. Now, the image in our mind should be this, that back in the first century, if you had an official document and it had a seal, the seal told you several things. The seal talked of authenticity. It talks of ownership. It talks of this is a document not to be tampered with. Whenever I go back to Scotland to visit family and friends, and I come back into the United States, I have to go through customs and naturalization and immigration services. And I give my passport, and then I give an even more important document, and it's called a green card. And if you're familiar with a green card, it's not green, it's white, which is the first surprise. And then on the front that has your picture has your date of birth. It tells you when your card expires. It tells you when it began. As you flip over the back, it's about the size of a credit card. It's not large. There's a metallic or a magnetic strip. And it's like, in one sense, any other credit card. You'll be familiar with a black uh, strip on the back. And when I approach naturalization and immigration, they swipe it, and up on their screen comes my picture, my fingerprints, just the four, never the thumbs, just the four. And I think pandas would have a hard job getting into the U.S. because they've got thumbs. But anyway, you've got your four four, uh, sets of fingerprints, date of birth, marriage license, birth certificate. It's got all sorts of information about Ruth and Michael. And the metallic strip is about this size. It almost runs the full length of the back of the green card. But there's a seal on the back, and the seal says… Department of Homeland Security, if removed, this document is void. In other words, they are saying this is an authentic document. So when I go to the counter, give my passport, and then my green card, they bring up the details, they stamp it, and I come right on through. It's authentic. It's not to be tampered with the seal of the United States is on it. There is ownership. We say this is the real deal. This is an authentic document. And with that imagery in mind, that's what's happening here in these early verses of chapter 7. And John is seeing the angel of God say, "'Do not let the judgment of God come until I put a seal of ownership on my children.'" Now, please let me encourage you, if you're reading any fanciful literature on Revelation, the Scriptures do not say at any time Christians will ever have a barcode on their forehead that says 666 or any of that kind of silliness. What it means here is this, that when an individual responds to the gospel and God touches and transforms that life and gives that individual a new heart and a new soul and a new mind and new desires and new appetites, they come into a relationship with the living God. And in Galatians chapter 6, the apostle Paul, writing and describing that experience, says this, and they receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee and a seal of what is to come. Similar language here from John in Revelation. When the Holy Spirit impacts a life, transforms that life, not only does He change us, but He comes to dwell within us, to enable us and strengthen us to walk with Him the rest of our days. And from that point on, we belong to Him. And in an outrageous, lavish fashion, He sets His love and affection upon us, and we are His. We belong to Him. And here is John in symbolic language saying, the seal of God is upon them, and God is saying, they are mine. They belong to me. That's what's going on here. But the seal also has another sense, and it's a seal of protection. God is saying, They are mine, and I will protect them, and my hand is upon them. Doesn't mean they won't ever have tough days or difficult days or frustrating days or disappointing days or days when their heart will be broken, but I will never give up on them. I won't abandon them. I won't desert them. I will not leave them to the emotion of the moment. They are mine, and they belong to me. That's the image going on here. And then John, having heard all of this, also hears of the 144,000. Now, notice the language that John uses, because this is a perhaps one of the most uh, misinterpreted, misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And John says, verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher, all the way down to Benjamin. Now, before we get any further, I suspect in your mind you are saying, Richard, hold on. I hear what you're saying. Are you about to tell us that in all of eternity— only 144,000 people will enter, even, enter, enter into heaven and enjoy and know the blessing of God for themselves? Is that what you're going to tell us? And in fact, it suggests these are people from the various tribes of Israel. Therefore, is it only folks with a Jewish background, a heritage in Israel? Are those the frozen chosen? And the answer, of course, is no. What John is doing with 144,000 is exactly what he does in various places throughout Revelation. The numbers are often symbolic. And 144,000 is to be treated as a symbol, not a statistic. Now, let me say that again. It's not easy for me to say statistic, so I'll try it again. It is a symbol, not a Statistic. And I think there are more S's and I's in there than there should be, but that's where we're at. It is a symbol. And at 144,000, John is saying this is a huge number. It is a massive number, but it is also a number that speaks of completeness. And we'll talk about that in a moment or two. And so that gives you the sense of what's going on here. It has theological significance, not mathematical significance. So, let me take it a step further. And it has theological significance for this reason. In Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, says this, "'A man is a Jew if he is Jewish, not on the outside, but on the inside.'" In other words, it's not what he does. Rather, it is who he is, what's going on in the heart. And in fact, he then goes on to say this, circumcision on the outside is one thing, but someone who is considered a pure Jew has circumcision of the heart taking place. In other words, the old has been taken away, the new has come. And again, you find symbolic language which says… Anyone who has trusted in Christ, put their firm confidence in Him, sought repentance and renewal and forgiveness by Him, are considered part of God's chosen people. Therefore, several places in the New Testament, again and again and again, the people of God are referred to as the true Israel. In James chapter 1, verse 1, James writes to the people of Israel, the twelve chosen. Now, does he mind simply the people who are descendants of the original twelve tribes? No, he's using symbolic language for everyone who has come to faith. happens in James also happens in Peter. And Peter writes in these terms, to you, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And Peter is not writing to folks with a Jewish background at all. He's writing to Christian people. And so whenever you come across the phrase, the new Israel, or Israel in the New Testament, it's helpful to ask, is it symbolic or is it literal? Is the writer talking about Judaism in a national sense, or is he talking in a spiritual sense? And here, in the spiritual sense, that's what's going on here. And then notice verse 9. John began verse 4, Then I heard, and then verse 9, And after this I looked and saw, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and people and tribe and language. And what John is saying here is this, that from eternity past to eternity to come, the consummation—remember we mentioned it earlier—the consolation of all of history, there will be innumerable millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people whose lives have been impacted by the gospel, transformed, exposed to the love and grace of God, and they have found themselves in a living relationship with Him. And that's the people John is describing here people beyond any ethnic background, people beyond any social background, rich and poor, folks from Greenville and Pelzer and Easley and even North Carolina and above the Mason-Dixon line, they will be there as well. They will be there as well. I know that's a surprise, but they will. And maybe just, maybe just a handful of people from Scotland Maybe just. Maybe just. But his point is clear. Innumerable, beyond every tongue and language and people. For Christ has loved them before the foundation of the world, and set His love and affection upon them, and drew them to Himself. And that is the priority of God in all of history. And so, when you're tempted to think, what is His priorities? it is to put His seal of grace upon you and draw you into an ever-increasing relationship with Him. That's what's going on here. And notice what is their natural, instinctive response when they find themselves in the throne room of God. Verse 10, they were wearing white robes, of course, symbolizing cleanliness and forgiveness. And they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Worship God! Isn't that strange? They don't look at one another and say, nice to see you. How are you? How are the children? How are your parents? These are important conversations, needful conversations, but it's not the first thing. It's not the primary thing. And I suspect when we find ourselves having stepped away from this life and into eternity, there will be two immediate surprises. And the first is this, That we are actually there. And I'm deadly serious about that because if you know the pain and the sin and the shame of your own life. Even though you are forgiven, even though you are cleansed, even though you belong to Him, even though His seal is upon you, you will be lost in wonder, love, and praise at His grace and forgiveness, and you will be surprised to be there. And the next surprise, and it will come an annual second later, that you will fall on your face in worship and adoration and praise, overwhelmed by His goodness, lost in His love, renewed and refreshed internally and externally, because you are there with countless millions in the throne room of God. Amen? Amen. That will be the second surprise. And folks, please hear me when I say this, that on a Sunday morning, each Sunday morning, my prayer before I leave my office to come to worship is this. Father, allow us to engage with You, the living God, because worship for us on a Sunday is a priority. It's not for us simply tradition. We don't worship God because we think that's the nice thing or the right thing to do. For us here at First Presbyterian, worship is a central part of our identity. It's not a mark of activity. It's a central part of our identity. It's who we are. And if you turn around this morning and are closing hymn and look at the person next to you, they're not even reading the hymn book. Their heart and mind and soul is soaring heavenward. That's worship. That's worship, genuine, authentic realization that He loves you with an everlasting love. He has set His seal upon you, and you are His. And our only proper response is worship. Folks, I have to say this, and I don't say this lightly. There is no other place in all the world I would rather be on a Sunday morning than right here with you, engaging the living God, worshiping Him, being lost in His love. That's why worship is important. That's why it's right in here. That's why it is a priority of God. That's what's taking place here. And finally, as we move towards the end of our study this morning, this, what else does John say? Then one of the elders asked me, verse 13, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John speaks and says, I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, let me say a word or two about the tribulation. Tribulation amongst 21st century Christian writers, amongst New Testament scholars, has been given a multiplicity of views and understanding and interpretations, and sometimes misinterpretations. But what we can definitively say is this, that chapter 6, which laid out which was, which is, and what is still to come, laid out a great tribulation It laid laid out a great tribulation of war and famine, economic meltdown of greed and injustice and death and Hades. But what he's saying to us here is this, the Christian will ultimately come through it. Will it be painful at times? Absolutely. Are there times you're tempted to give up? Definitely. But you will come through it. And if you're here this morning and have had a tough week, and you are wrestling with an issue no one else knows you're wrestling with, and it has brought you to tears, and you are disappointed, and your heart is broken, please understand this. You still belong to Him, and He has you in the palm of His hand, and He will not give up on you. He will refine you, and shape you, and fashion you, and you are his eternally. Eternally. Please remember this, and if you're taking notes this morning, I need you to get this down, because this is our last thought before we come to the end of our service, and it's this. When Christ went to the cross at Calvary, He didn't simply make salvation possible. He made it possible. A reality. A reality. Calvary is not about probability or feasibility. You don't make the salvation of God a reality when you receive Him. It's a reality whether you receive Him or not. That's the gospel. The gospel doesn't simply offer liberation, it liberates. It doesn't simply offer regeneration, it regenerates. That's the power and the call of God in our lives. And when we receive Him and turn our lives over to Him in repentance and faith, we are His forever. Forever. Now, the temptation of some of you, and I can see it already, are saying, Richard, are you trying to tell us that an individual can never lose their faith? That's exactly what Scripture teaches exactly what it teaches. Remember, when He died for your sins, His closing words were what? It is finished. It's accomplished. It's a done deal. You are His, and you may fall radically, and you may fall in a difficult manner. But falling seriously and radically does not mean you will be kept out of the Lord's salvation. Ask David in the Old Testament, who committed murder and adultery. Ask Peter, who denied him three times. Can we sin seriously and radically? Yes, but never totally and finally. Never totally and finally, because His seal is upon you, and you are is what are the closing words for this morning verse 16 never again will they hunger never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He loves you with an everlasting love. He has you, and that is His priority throughout all of history. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this extraordinary chapter in Scripture. Thank you again for his love and his, your goodness, your grace. And so this morning as we embark on a new week, we ask your blessing upon us. Encourage us, strengthen us, and most of all, enable us please day by day, moment by moment, to live for you, the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.